Welcome to the third episode of the Fifth Quarter Podcast with me, David Elliott from Lanyon Group. We're brought to you once again this month with the support of Armagh City, Banbridge and Craig Avon Borough Council's Food Heartland. We have a cracking episode for you this month. We're talking to two businesses which really epitomise the enterprise and resilience of the Northern Ireland agri-food world. Both are world class, both add value to their products and both fit neatly into this podcast's focus on that elusive fifth quarter. This month, we're looking at innovation and how important it is to helping a business to evolve and to meet the changing demands of consumers. Later, we're going to be down on the orchards of Armagh to chat to the McKeevers, who are the family behind Long Meadow Cider. They have a brilliant story to tell about how they diversified their business to add value to the apples which they grow by producing top-class cider and vinegar. Before that, we're chatting to a legend of the agri-food world, Brian Irwin, the chairman of Irwin's Bakery, to hear more about the iconic Portadown business, how it flexes to meet changing demands of consumers, and most importantly, which of the company's products is his favourite. Okay, Brian, first of all, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, The first thing I want to ask you uh, is to get a bit of background on Irwin's Bakery, um, how you've got to where you are today. Well, I suppose let's first of all say where we are. We're in, we're in Portadown. We've been here for, uh, well, since 1912. Uh, we're fourth generation bakery. We're supplying uh, all of Northern Ireland, uh, Republic of Ireland, uh, and every part of, of UK. So, yes, we're, we're, we're pleased to be here. We're, we're making fantastic breads uh, with as much character and traditionality as we can get into them. And at the same time, adapting and adjusting for market changes and consumers all the time. And Brian, how has the business evolved and how has it got to where it is at the moment? We wouldn't be where we are today if if we didn't have a a fantastic team around us. Uh, And that has been uh, brought to the fore, not just over the last uh, uh, 20, 30 years, but also in this last 12 months. Uh, and the response that they, that they, they have made to challenges all along the way have put us to where we are. One of the first big things that we did uh, to get us to where we are today was decide that Northern Ireland wasn't big enough. We weren't going to be able to grow uh, to our aspirations within uh, Northern Ireland. So we set ourselves a task of, of uh, getting into the Republic of Ireland, but more importantly, getting across the water into GB. And that aspiration for growth then yielded a decision to move our bakery from town centre premises where we'd been since old grandfather Irwin started the, the business up uh, to a nice greenfield site in the outskirts of Portadown. That was the big turning point because it gave us uh, credibility in the eyes of our customers because we'd invested massively to do so. But also we were modern with space uh, to grow. Uh, and we improved our capabilities to match them. Those are the two big things. And during during that time, you've evolved to meet the tastes of a changing consumer market. How is that? How has that evolved? You know, and how, you've been producing some of your stalwart products now for for many many uh, years, and then you've introduced some new products most recently. How do you make sure that you're keeping up with the trends for around consumer demand? The most important thing of all is to recognise you don't know everything and to keep on listening to your customers, to your retailers, and also listening to your consumers. 
mm-hmm. and you you listen to them, you see which way the trends are beginning to go. You see what how they're changing their their uh, requirements, and you keep up with that. But it's a question of of always being willing to a change and adapt to a changing consumer tastes. Um, pack sizes have got smaller, uh, much more reliance now on resealability. People are trying to reduce food waste. They're very concerned about nutrition and full unpacked nutritional information helps them a lot in that. But also by by realising what their concerns and desires are, we can publicise those, we can bring those to the fore in manner that reassures them and gives them what they're looking for in their product. But while there's a lot of change in in all types of bread, uh, there's also a lot of stability because bread is a very traditional type of product because people grow up with it. And you tend to eat the same bread that your parents ate and things like that. People drink the tea that their mother drank. Why? Because that's the first tea they had. They they eat the loaf that their that their father ate because that's the one they got locked onto. And if you keep that taste the same, you can rely upon customer inertia and also taste preferences to keep that yeah. with you. At the same time, people's wants and desires are constantly changing. So you've got this, if you like, two way pull: the stability, the tradition. They keep it the same. We want new, we want different tastes, we want textures. You know, 20 years ago, we hadn't heard of bagels. They're everywhere. 20 years ago, potato bread was a big thing, and we thought that was on the way out because people didn't want to have a big fry every morning. Actually, they don't. But they find new uses for the potato bread because it's great for snacking. It's great for for a quick, small meal. the beans, the cheese, the, the potato bread go really quick and well together. Lots of new things come along. Wheat and bread, most old-fashioned bread you can get. It goes back to the middle 1800s. Wheat and bread is now seen as, as a modern thing. It's lots of texture, lots of fibre, lots of honest-to-goodness wholemeal taste in it. Uh, and it's also good for things like... Uh, uh, a little bit of uh, cream cheese and, and smoked salmon. Uh, that wasn't with us 20 years ago. So wheat and bread has now become modern, fitting into our lifestyles. And it's a baker's job to make the products they make relevant to changing lifestyles. And if you don't talk about it and you don't exemplify it, then people don't quite catch on as quickly as you would like. It, it must be very hard to predict these kind of changes and is it more a case of reacting to the consumer and if so do you re- do you listen and you talk about listening to the consumer there do you listen to them through your supermarket customer or your, your other kind of customers or do you go direct to the consumer principally you go direct to the consumer uh, much easier now with with uh, uh, the internet and social media mm-hmm. uh, you're able to uh, get ideas and opinions and views uh we have had for a number of years um, a consumer insights manager, and they look at uh, what's going on in the in the in the media and the press, uh, going on in in uh, recipe suggestions, going on in in the, in the world of uh, chefing and cookery, 
and those new those sort of nutritional comments all feed into what we need. So you keep up with the consumer through many different touch points, as well as you talk to other consumers. You talk mm-hmm. to people in shops. You talk to your own uh, your own employees. You talk to people you meet. Everybody has an opinion and view about food. If you want to start a conversation, start it about food. Everybody has their opinion. Yeah. And unfortunately, they're not slow about giving it to you. <laughs> I'm sure sometimes you wish you didn't have to listen to it all the time. It's uh, yeah, it's interesting. Um, I, I I just I want to touch just very briefly on um, the fact Irwin's is a is a, is a family business, and you know it's 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 been passed through the generations and, and built up through the generations. Um, how how important is that to its success? I think there's two two key standout issues about a family business. One is is uh, stability, and that really feeds into. Uh, your relationships with your, your your retailers, your customers, with your suppliers, uh, with your, your funders. Uh, and they feel that there's uh, you're a company that can be relied upon because of your longevity. That stability comes about from a long-term view that family businesses have. The second thing that a family business gives is culture. And that culture is really important uh, in the workforce and even with the largest workforce here we find that we have a, a different culture than a lot of other businesses uh, it's one that people seem comfortable with it's a, an atmosphere it's a little bit hard to describe whenever you're in it but people feel at home they feel they feel valued uh, they feel welcomed and that type of culture is really hard to create and in a family business, it seems to be uh, something you can really get at. We're pleased about those two issues. Um, you mentioned there about, about stability. The last year has been anything but stable for, for businesses in every sector and of every size. Um, how, how has the business coped through COVID? I, I mean, I, I know you've, you've been quite vocal in some of the the, um, the the ways that you managed the business in the early stages of lockdown and, and of COVID. How, how have you managed it um, both from a, a, uh, a consumer point of view and indeed how you manage the, the, the staff in the business how have you, through the pandemic? One of the things about a, a family business is they've got to know how to manage the amount of uh, professional management within a company and the blend of, of professionalism uh, and and family members has got to be correctly executed because the professional managers need to be given their their uh, their head they have a very clear idea and it's uh, it's a blend of the two directions through the pandemic, we found that there was a tremendous pressures put on our staff. Uh, initially, it was, it was uncertainty. It was fear. Uh, it was a lot of wariness about even coming to work. At the same time, given the, uh, the, the peak in demand that there was through panic buying, there was more need than ever for us to keep on producing. So we had to balance those two issues. And without professional management, using every aspect of, of, of staff communications uh, and uh, 
they like that culture that so so hard to define. To make people feel safe at work and to want to come to work was a key to success. And as a result, we were able to meet all our, our customer demands, even when they peaked to, to 20 and 25% above normal. And we took all the measures that we had to do that. It's just uh, streamlining our production at the same time as, as bringing in new social distancing measures, which were very strange to everyone. Uh, and been able to make people feel confident about coming to work and that we were looking after them. So it was very much a collaborative effort there between management and staff to maintain production, to maintain safety at all time, and to uh, be a, a caring, responsible organisation that people believed in. And the staff through, through it all were, have been absolutely uh, wonderful. We found that the coping with COVID was, was uh, something that was changing all the time. It was quite an evolutionary thing. Yeah. Uh, and we were, said uh, at the very start that we'd be willing to change anything at any time at short notice that we needed to, and we did. And mm-hmm. we had great backing from uh, all our suppliers, uh, from our customers to change delivery arrangements, uh, from all our sales staff, because uh, they had to go out and visit the shops, uh, and our production staff all pulled together. While we were doing all of that, of course, we had a bit of planning to do for Brexit. Yes, precisely, and uh, it bring, brings us nicely on to my my next uh, question, which was uh, was around how that impacted the business. Because you mentioned that that moving into markets outside Northern Ireland was it was a key moment for the business. So how how's Brexit how's Brexit impacted that plan? Well, I suppose we this past two years, two and a half years, we've been planning for all types. Of kinds of Brexit. We eventually got the one that we got and we've got to cope with that. The fact that we've got a, a good uh, TCA was most most helpful. Uh, the, uh, the arrangements that we've got now allow us uh, free exports, uh, very much uh, for an export organisation that's absolutely crucial so our goods can go south and they can go east without any problem whatsoever. Sales is the lifeblood of any company. Imports have been uh, surprisingly little affected. Lots more administration, a lot of hassle, a lot of organisation required, but with a trusted supply chain, we've managed to cope with all of those things. But we're in the lucky end of the business because we don't have goods of animal origin that we're importing. The SPS rules affect us to only a peripheral extent. So uh, we find ourselves coping with Brexit on an everyday basis, multiplying our uh, our administration. But, and this is the big but, we're wondering how is it going to evolve? Yeah. And there are there are issues which will which will come through on Brexit we haven't quite thought of yet. And they're increasingly becoming obvious. Those issues, as they come to the fore, need time to solve. And the one thing that the negotiation of the Brexit uh, Treaty didn't allow for was uh, complete negotiation of all aspects. It was all pushed through a little bit hurried at the last minute. So we're now trying to deal with, with a lot of things that should have been dealt with earlier. And the stresses, the strains over the the implications of the of the Irish Protocol are just 
uh, an example of that. And and what what are those issues, Brian, or or are those issues that you see coming down the road that maybe you haven't yet encountered? The issues, apart from the the SBS issues, which are well publicised, that would be more generic for for food businesses. It's the issue of labelling and uh, divergence of standards. Northern Ireland will be under EU standards. UK will be under uh, their own set of standards, which at the moment are absolutely the same. But uh, in time, there could be divergence away from the EU standards, which could give us some issues. Yeah. We don't know what those are yet because we don't know what the divergences will be. But there is a great advantage for both sides, if you like, for the EU and the UK to try and maintain uh, standards as close together as possible to allow open and free access to each other's markets. Because that's what built the uh, the trade within the European community. It was being able to grow in other markets. And the thing that makes that growth possible, standards that are similar or at least understood. Um, Brian, I, I want, to, want to move on to your locality. You're, you're based um, in Portadown. And as you know, as we know it now, that the food heartland. How important is this sector, the, the agri-food sector, to the borough and indeed to Northern Ireland? Food is Northern Ireland's biggest industry. It's like the guy that climbs up to the top of the mountain and he doesn't see the mountain because he's on top of it. <laughs> We're sitting uh, in Northern Ireland with a with a massively successful food processing industry. It's successful because it's a quality. It has tremendous customer credibility uh, right across the world, but in particular right across uh, the British Isles. These are really professional companies that have have cut their teeth and earned their spurs and all those other cliches, and they are incredibly well respected. It's uh, 25,000 direct employees, 100,000 jobs supported by the food industry in Northern Ireland. And the ABC Council area, where we're situated, those figures are, are higher because this is a real nexus of food production. This whole North County Armagh and all around mm-hmm. uh, of, of all types of food production, beef processing, uh, chickens, poultry, vegetables, uh, baking, apples, huge variety of food businesses. And the, if you go back to the, the, the old cluster theory, whenever you get a number of world-class businesses in a, in a close area all working together, they begin to feed each other in terms of improvement. Mm-hmm. And that then becomes a virtual acceleration of, of people and support companies, that whole network and infrastructure feeding each off each other. And that's what it's like in North Armagh. We've got food businesses who can talk to each other, engineering companies who supply us, the transport companies, the packaging guys. I only have to go down the road for a guy to, who, who could do my packaging machinery for me. Those things give us world-class advantages. Mm-hmm. So uh, ABC Council has been absolutely prescient in seeing how important food processing is to their area and seeking to support it. That's that's really interesting because those clusters, we often hear about them, but but to hear it actually uh, being being talked about so eloquently about 
how it helps you being able to, to nip down to talk to the man that, that, that makes your, the man or the woman that makes your packaging machine. It's, it's, it's interesting to, to hear. Brian, the ABC Food Strategy was launched quite recently. You were involved in bringing that together. How important is that to the future of the sector in the borough? The, the food, uh, food processing industry and, and food growing uh, in the borough is immensely important. It's, it's the biggest industry in, in the borough. So it's vital that the council uh, recognise that and support it. What I see this new uh, action plan doing is providing a template for other councils in Northern Ireland to get on board in their economic regeneration plans and the recovery that we that, 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 that we currently face is to back the local industry. And the ABC Council have done that uh, consistently over the last uh, number of years from the very inception of their Food Heartland project. And they're taking that now into a series of programs to help producers, the smaller ones, the artisan producers, help them to grow the mid-sized ones to find new markets, to develop new expertises, new tools, and also helping some larger companies as well. All doing it on a, on a limited budget, but I think with a lot of skill and enthusiasm. This will be important for ABC Council area. It would be important for local jobs, particularly the SMEs. Uh, I think it's vital for the future. And they've taken uh, a sector that Northern Ireland people are really good at. Uh, We've got some fabulous local produce here, from our apples to our meat and our dairy, all capable of producing products of of immense quality and great authenticity. I want to move on to a slightly political topic, Brian. how can government help you? If you were minister for the day, what do you think you would put in place to help the sector grow further, to help your own sector? You're only only one day now, you'll have to give it up at the end of the day. Um, That's a good thing. (laughs) We're going to need new jobs in Northern Ireland. To recover from the pandemic, we're going to need those jobs as soon as we can. And the industry that can deliver most jobs soonest has got to be food. It's the biggest industry, the biggest number of employees, and its its biggest market is the one next door. So we're mm-hmm. same language, same currency, already established trading relationship, uh, really in-depth quality relationships with the major uh, customers over there. That's where you can accelerate very quickly your your sales and therefore your your employment. Mm-hmm. The minister. For one day, what uh, what I'd like to do is, is I would like to encourage the need for capital investment and modernisation through some form of capital grant. But above all else, I would love to see a form of assistance for market penetration, for sales development, for marketing mm-hmm. development. Those things uh, pay back not tenfold, but but a hundredfold. And I say, you know, that the first two percent of marketing spend is always the hard two percent yeah. whenever you get that spent the rest of it becomes easy because you see the rewards yeah. so a capital assistance to allow us to make the the, the the upfront investment in efficiency and secondly the uh, the investment in sales growth and, and you mentioned there investment in, in capital equipment uh, does 
they're just looking at kind of future trends does does your sector and your business in particular would that benefit from the likes of robotics and automated intelligence is is that something that would help certain industries certain sizes of companies uh are going to need robotics we've Mm -hmm. been uh, starting down that that road for the last few years uh, automating one process at a time one aspect of one process at a time we've got uh, two or three robots in the place we need uh, much more, but that doesn't suit everyone. Yeah, there are lots more uh, ways of establishing efficiency without going to robotics, because robotics loves standardisation. And what the, a lot of consumer markets want now is they want differentiation. They want yes. bespoke. They want handmade. <laughs> yeah, to catch twenty-two. Uh, you know, they they don't want a machine-cut piece of meat. They want the one that's trimmed nicely. Yeah. The bone left uh, a little bit exposed and a nice little yeah. uh, doily yeah. on the end of it. They yes. want sauces added to it. They want the whole <laughs> thing presented to them. So more handwork is required. And we've got to find clever ways of doing that. Robotics, absolutely, we must have for the big processes. And we also have to investment in skills, hand skills, mm-hmm. to be able to give us the different premium products that Northern Ireland is beginning to become famous for. And uh, North Armagh in particular, and and another kind of future trend that, that we've been talking about a lot recently, and it's, it's been mentioned in a CEO report by KPMG recently, is is the fact that the green agenda has really risen up that ranking and priorities for for chief executives as something that they need to, to make sure is embedded into their business. Is that the same for you? Uh, yes, uh, we've been quite uh, aware of this for, for the last couple of years and. There's many, many ways which we can address the green agenda using energy consumption, uh, look to our packaging, evolve that away from, from single-use plastics. And we need cooperation, of course, from, from both government and the, the recycling industry on to do that efficiently and effectively. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's not a quick thing to do. It's not an yeah. easy thing to do. And I think uh, as a company, we're aware of those things coming down the road that uh, are going to have to be uh, managed. It's not enough just to do the surface things. We're going to have to look harder at the longer term things. Sustainable power is all very good, but what do we do when it stops blowing? We've got to have um, cleverer ways of coping with that. Mm. Uh, But our consumers are interested in the green agenda. Our consumers are interested in sustainability. Uh, and we want to work together with with what their preferences are. Yeah, really, it comes back to listening again. It's got a theme that kind of uh, I've picked up from you from from listening to you is is that listening to your consumer, listening to to your to your work, to people that work for you is is, is key, and that's that's really interesting. Um, Brian, we're we're coming nearly to the end of our time. What does the future hold? for Irwin's Bakery? Where, where do you go now? You've come so far and, and, and evolved so much. Where, where do you go now? I think that the, the direction that we take will be dictated by consumer needs. So we're going to listen to them and take ourselves in that direction. And what we know they want is they want quality bread above all else. And they're willing to buy that. They're willing to pay a little bit more for that. But they absolutely know what they want. They're very uh, well educated in terms of their 
their palate and their preferences. So we've got to keep on giving them that. At the same time, keep giving them the new things mm-hmm. that they want. They want the uh, the high protein, the lots of fruit in their bread if they want it, the seeds and ancient cereals, ancient grains. They want to look at the nutrition and be reassured that this food not only looks good and tastes good, it also does them good. Yeah. Really interesting. Really interesting, Brian. Thank you. What one last question. What what's your favorite I mean, and this is a slightly churlish question, but what what's your favorite product that you produce? Our favorite product above all else, and one that I never tire of, is our nutty crust sliced plain bread. So glad you said that, Brian, because that's mine too. <laughs> toasted toasted with, with a lot of butter on it. Can't be beaten. It's uh, it's remarkable that, that that people talk about this. You know, it's, it's, it's an everyday thing that we do. We do it every day and we look after it so preciously uh, to, to give the consumer what they want. It's the go-to line uh, in the bakery every evening before I go home. I want to go down there. I want to see what's coming off. I want to open the loaf. Yeah. I want to smell it and I want to have a look at it and see what it's like. Uh, and, and I give feedback. And the guys... Love the feedback, you know. They all want to know how it's going. Fascinating insight from Brian there, and one which shows what it takes to grow a business off scale. Next, we're going to chat to Catherine McKeever from Longmeadow Cider. I caught up with Catherine at the tail end of the autumn harvest on one of the farm's orchards. Really started about six years ago. Um, we've always grown the apples, so we're the McKeever family and we're third generation apple growers. So the apples was primarily our business. Since that, we have diversified into uh, not only the cider industry, but also apple juice and apple cider vinegar. Now, as I said, it's going now about six years. Um, it is a family-run business, so it's just it's just ourselves. The only time we really would have outside help would be um, now at harvest time, where we would employ seasonal workers to help us just get the fruit off. And who's involved? It's a family family firm, but who's involved in the, in the company? So um, involved is um, my husband, Pat, and myself and our son, Peter, would be the three main ones within the business. Uh, we also have four daughters, and they help us out very much in the line of doing events and functions. Um, farm tours, our farm tours have really taken off, both internationally and nationally. So um, the girls would help us out with those as well. Give us a flavour of what you did before you turned to cider and how you diversified in, into cider. So as I said, before the cider started, we were primarily apple growers. Um, we grow about 120, 130 acres of, of, of apples, um, consistent of the PGA Bramley apple and a selection of fruit apples, um, sweet apples as well. So that was our main business. And then it was really Pat and Peter that would have been involved in it. I had my own work. And I wasn't really needed as much in that side of the business. But from we have diversified, it's really all hands on deck and everybody is really needed. Because there is only us, it really does take each and every one of us to play their part. And I, I take it 
previously you were selling just apples um, to so a, a yeah. buyer, maybe. Yeah, we were selling mainly to the processing market. Mm-hmm. Um, and they'd have been going out then into um, supermarket chains or that have been going into, you know, to pay fillings and things like that. But it was mostly the, pro- it is still, um, the majority of our apples would still go to the processing market. But we're finding now that as the cider business has taken off and the apple juice and the apple cider vinegar, we're finding now that we're, Every year, we're you're, we're using a larger percentage of our own fruit. And what was the what was the trigger to diversify? Was it to increase margins uh, and to look for new products? Well, it was something that we always talked about, but um, I'd say maybe we had considered it ten to fifteen years ago. But our children were still very young, and we weren't prepared to give up our time spent with them and their childhood to start up a new business. So we waited till the time was right. Uh, we did a lot of research into it and uh, we took the bull by the horns in uh, six years ago. We diversified. It really does, it's, it's ideal for us because we do have the fruit here on site. So um, it's great to be able to use our own apples within our own products. The apples we use are our own hand-picked fruit. So anything that touches the floor of the orchard, we don't touch. So if it's soiled, it doesn't get pressed. We also aim to press our apples within 24 to 48 hours of picking so that they don't get the opportunity to sit and maybe waste and it means they're retaining all their natural flavours. And when it com- came to actually figuring out how to make cider, how did you learn that and how did you, you, how did you, you come up with the product? Well, we originally started off with two products, which was our medium cider and our blossom burst, which would be the slightly sweeter one. Pat and Peter did a huge amount of research into it. Um, there was a lot of um, dabbling and trying to come up with different ideas for it. There was, do you know what I mean, a lot of the stuff that we originally had made on those early days, it was just really trial and error. And we did try it out with family and friends. We did, as I said, a lot of research into it. Peter had attended different cider courses and had went to um, England and did various cider courses on it as well. And we came up originally with the two main ciders, the two traditional ones, and then we introduced uh, a beautiful oak age cider just down the line from that. But I think we have gained now with experience. We've got now to know, you know what I mean, what we are doing. In those early days, as I said, we were just, it really was trial and error for us before we even attempted to put it out into the food chain. A lot of it was trialled out with family and friends and I have to say they're only too willing to help us out. I was going to say there are worse trials <laughs> to have to go through, aren't there? Yes, they were very keen and very <laughs> eager. <laughs> Um, and then where do you sell the product to? Because, you know, obviously we've, we're sitting in the orchard here and we, we, we can see some of the, the, the product sitting in front of us. But where, where does that go to? Do you sell it to shops and to, to other kind of retail outlets? Yeah, so it's mostly retail outlets, as you say, we're into. We're into uh, one of the big supermarket chains now at the moment, um, which is Sainsbury's. And um, we also supply into a lot of independent off-sales, hotels, restaurants, and quite a lot of the five-star hotels and that as well. Not only with the, the cider, but also with the apple juice and the apple cider vinegar. We see both of those has equally taken off just as much as what the cider has. We also have now started to export on a smallish scale, should we say. We are exporting now into France and Italy. And we also have product that has went out to Latvia and the Middle East and that as well. We do have, we are currently working now with other countries who have expressed an interest and we're currently um, looking down those avenues now as well. 
And what's that experience like, breaking into new markets, and particularly in, you know, as it's far daunting. away as those? It yeah. is. It's very, very daunting. It was very daunting for us now at the start because you were putting out huge quantities of product because we'd never done it before. You know, was it going to get there safely? Was there going to be damages? Was the paperwork all in place? <laughs> but now, as I say, we've got now with experience, we know now to sort of just, should we say, relax just slightly. Uh-huh. Uh, but at the start, no, it was, it was a daunting experience, yes. And what's the reception like to, I mean, this is a beautiful product uh, and I've tried it before. What's the reception like over there in, in, in new countries? Because it's a very unique taste, isn't it? It is, it is. It's lovely to see because funny, we have got tweets and different things put up on Facebook and social media and that. It's lovely to see your product in other countries. Yeah. It's lovely to see images of those in other countries and people actually sitting down and enjoying it. So it is lovely to see that. Our main market is our home market. We do. We sell a lot of our products here within Northern Ireland and we're now branching out into the Republic as well. But it is lovely to see your products in, in other countries and sitting in other shops. And, and where do you go now with the company? Because, you know, you've already started some export. Do you, do you export to, to, to further away? We will. We'll, we'll keep going. Just because we've started to export doesn't mean say we can sort of take a back seat from it. We'll, we'll continue with it. Uh, we're always looking for new markets. Um, and as I said, we've currently a couple now in the pipeline. We're hoping that they're going to um, turn right for us. But we'll just have to see how they go. But we will. We'll always strive and we'll always push. We have a very deep passion for what we do and what we believe in. If we didn't, we wouldn't be in the position that we're in today. Like the business has grown considerably from what it was from it first started. Like if someone had said to us five years ago, you'll be doing this and X, Y and Z, we'd have said there's not a, there's not a mission. But um, we're really surprised ourselves how much the business have taken off. Like we've, we've had to put up new bills and that as well, which is brilliant. And we just see that it's continually starting, it's continually growing. What, what do you put that success down to? I think it's down to the passion and drive that we have within the family. Um, because we've started this now and we're just not going to give up on it no matter what happens. We've put so much into it. Uh, we've given up so much as a family to get the business up and going and off the ground and we'll continue to do what we're doing. But I think it's great too that, it's, that it is family run because there's a trust there within family that you're not going to get anywhere else. Mm-hmm. And I think because that trust and that passion is there, I think that really is what has driven the business on as far as it is. And where do you go now? Um, as I said, we're going to continue doing what we're doing. We're going to continue um, trying to get out into further markets, EU and non-EU countries. As I said earlier, our tourism part of the business has taken off. We have tourists now coming in from both internationally and nationally. We're going to keep pushing to those. We're working with various tour operators. We see that side of the business is growing. Um, so we are. We're just going to keep going and just keep doing what we're doing because it's obviously working. We attend quite a lot of shows and events, so we're constantly promoting the brand and we're going to continue to do that. I think you'll agree a brilliant story from Longmeadow there on innovation and diversification running right through that business. With that, our third episode of the Fifth Quarter podcast comes to a close. I hope you've enjoyed it and please do get in touch if you want to tell us your agri-food story. I'd like to thank Armagh City, Banbridge and Craigavon Borough Council's Food Heartland for their support and to all our contributors for their time. Thanks for listening and look out for next month's episode.